Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We're in a series on the Gospel of John titled Witness to the Light. And following the sermon, you'll hear the weekly Q&A. Do this, John 4. We are kind of closing the book on this section uh, in the beginning of John's gospel where he has um, kind of laid a foundation of uh, Jesus's ministry approach, ministry philosophy. It started back in John chapter one, really, uh, or John two, with the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned 120 gallons of water into 120 gallons of really good wine in order to save a wedding that had run out of wine. And we talked about how that was this picture of Jesus' extravagant and one might say gratuitous grace, this over-the-top provision of grace uh, for this couple and, and on their special day. And then immediately the story pivots to the temple where Jesus goes in and there's money changers and they've made kind of a mockery of the temple and Jesus uh, takes a bunch of uh, uh, cords, makes a whip and starts driving people out of the temple and driving animals out of the temple, whipping fools uh, on their way out. And, uh, and we talked about it was this kind of two-handed approach to ministry that Jesus takes, uh, which is both grace and truth. Right, that he is extravagantly gracious and really serious about sin, really serious about the truth at the same time. Not one, then the other, not one with some people and then the other, not grace for some people and truth for others. That uh, by nature, the truth of God is gracious and that the grace of God is truthful, that embodies truth and the grace of God always transforms us, right? So we, we've kind of set that parameter and then uh, we, the story turned to Nicodemus, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, and we saw how he employed this grace and truth paradigm in his conversation with Nicodemus, who's this Jewish guy, really powerful, well-educated, ambitious, uh, powerful in every sense, social, political, spiritual, uh, and that Jesus brought both grace, grace and truth to him. Then we took a little break with uh, John the Baptist and closing kind of the book on this idea with Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. This is a very famous story, very well-known gospel story if you're familiar at all with the Jesus story more broadly. This is probably one you've heard of. And, and what I want us to see in this, and we'll, we'll get into it really quickly, but what I want us to see is both the similarities and the differences between Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus and now his interaction with this woman at the well. So let me pray and then we'll get into it. Jesus, we are in these moments entirely dependent upon you and your Holy Spirit to move powerfully, to uh, empower my words, Lord, to, uh, to affect our hearts, to draw us to you, to change us in meaningful ways, to push these things down deep into our hearts. So I pray, Spirit, that you would do that now. May my words be your words. In Christ's name we pray, amen. John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, stop there because this is kind of the, this is the setup for this whole story right? If we were first century Jews hearing this story for the first time, if we were Jesus' disciples and he told us, hey, we have to pass through Samaria. And then we, we stop at Jacob's well and he sends us into uh, this place, Sychar, to buy food. And then we come back and see that he's talking to this Samaritan woman at the well. All of this would have been somewhat shocking to us, right? Like if you were first century Jews and I was recounting this story to you, you would all gasp when I say these things. So let's do that together. Ready? Let's gasp. <gasps> okay, good. You're starting to get it. This is a really big deal, okay? Uh, this is, uh, the Samaritans were for the Jews their other, right? Whoever, whoever, their, uh, whoever your other is, the Samaritans were the Jews' other. Now, I was thinking about who our others are, and what's interesting about this kind of time and place in our life is that the other for us is not monolithic, right? There were eras in my childhood where the other was Russia or the other was Germany or the other was, you know, this, these like these bad guys out there. When I was in junior high, high school, the others was, it was Iraq, it was Saddam Hussein. And there was like these national enemies that we had. And that's just kind of not the case as much anymore in some ways for the good and other ways for ill because we are so fractured now that there are other there are probably, I mean, each of us in this room have different people. And some, in some cases, we might be each other's other and not even know it in certain ways, right? So some of you who are, are Trump supporters and some of you are Bernie bros. Some of you uh, are, are uh, pro-life and some of you are pro-choice. Some of you like football, some of you like soccer. And, uh, and, and you hate each other and for, for good reason. Um, I, I was actually at the Sounders game last night uh, with uh, someone from the church and my son and the, his son. It was a great time. I will say this, though, the whole scarves up thing that they do, if you guys have seen this, this that's the most Seattle uh, sports thing I've ever heard of. Scarves up, guys, right? Like that, there's nothing less intimidating than holding your scarf in the air. It's like, oh, Seattle, love you. This is, this is kind of what's happening here for Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? There's all kinds of context clues for us that, that make us aware of the fact that there was a, a bunch of things that were out of the ordinary, right? So for instance, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to get to Jerusalem. Now, um, the reality is he didn't have to go geographically. In fact, most Jews, most rabbis would go down around Samaria so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. And so this idea of had to is more of like a divine call that God told him to go through Samaria, Right? The fact that he sent his disciples into the city to buy food would have been another kind of little gaspy moment, right? Like that the Jews would actually eat the food made by, provided by the Samaritans was very uncommon. 
And then the fact that Jesus stops at Jacob's well in the middle of Samaria, sits down and engages a woman, a Samaritan woman. You hear that in her story. How is it that, that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? And then the last little piece of context that um, I want to draw our attention to is the fact that this is happening, as the scripture says, in the sixth hour or at noon, in the middle of the day, right? And, and if you were a first century Jew, you would immediately go, oh, wait, why is this woman drawing water in the middle of the day? In the Middle East, you didn't walk outside of your town, perhaps a mile or two or more, outside of your town in the middle of the day under the hot sun to draw water. You did that in the morning. You did that in the evening when it was cooler. You didn't do it in the middle of the day. And you certainly, if you were a woman, didn't do it by yourself. So there's all these kind of context clues that tell us that something unique is happening here. Now, what I also think is important for us to understand is that this is the subtext, not the text. This is the, the point of all this information is that it's not the point. So if you were a first century Jew, you would read this intro, this setup and go, oh, I bet Jesus is going to act really different with the Samaritan woman than he did with Nicodemus. And so what the point is that the subtext isn't the point. The point is that all the, the differences between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman isn't the point of the story. The point is to draw our attention to the similarity of the way that Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman to the way he interacted with Nicodemus. The fact that he didn't just bring grace to this woman or just bring truth. The fact that he didn't just bring truth or just bring grace to Nicodemus, but for each of them, if we kind of take away the context, he engages them both in a really similar way as we'll see now as we get into the story. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus does the same kind of confusing non sequitur here with this woman that he did with Nicodemus. If you remember back to John 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, hey, we see that you're a prophet come from God, teacher come from God, because no one could do the things that you do if God had not sent him. And Jesus goes, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus is like, huh? What are you talking about? And Jesus, we talked about how he used this phrase for born again that can also mean born from above, right? This, this one word that can mean born again or from above. He does the same thing with this woman where this idea of living water that is translated here simply living water is the word you would use to just describe fresh water. 
right? Fresh spring water that doesn't come from a well, like not stagnant well water, this, this spring of living fresh water. And so she takes that to mean simply that he knows where a spring is with fresh water. And she goes, how, how could there be a spring? We're in the middle of the desert. God gifted this well to our father Jacob. It's the only reason why these, these cities and towns are surrounding this source of water in the middle of the desert. How are, are you greater than our father Jacob? She doesn't understand. And yet Jesus uses this connection, this desire for water, this need for water to kind of draw out deeper desires in her, right? It's it's an introduction that Jesus makes to the conversation. It's a way in which he draws her out to use the present context to draw out a deeper desire. Because you notice at the end, She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, practical, physical need, or have to come here to draw water. She's thirsty, not just for water, but for a different life. She wants something different. She wants something more. And the gospel offers her a genuinely different life. And as we'll see in just a moment, the only thing it will cost her is her old life. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This has got to be in many ways a terrifying moment for her. Right, she comes to the well and is interacting with this kind of strange Jewish man who's engaging her respectfully and talking to her and asking her for water. And all of a sudden he says maybe the one thing that she just hopes he doesn't say, which is, hey, go, go call your husband and come back here so I can talk to the two of you about this living water. And she goes, well, I actually don't have a husband. And then he just reads her mail to her. Tells her her whole story. I mean, the, the, the crux of it, the crisis of her story. He tells it to her in this moment. You're right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. He goes right to the heart of her story. Takes the light of the gospel and shines it into the darkest place. He has already invited her into living water that can well up to this eternal life, this this, uh, never thirsting again kind of water that can satisfy all her needs and all her thirst. And then says, But we've got to start with the hardest part. The gospel saves us from everything that it is applied to. Let me say that again. The gospel saves us from everything it is applied to. Jesus says, you want to stop being thirsty? Then believe in me and let that belief seep down into every part of your life. Remembering back to our story of Nicodemus in John 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that the light has come into the world and some people like the darkness more than the light and so they hide. They create dark spots where the light of the gospel can't come in and illuminate. 
And I told a story that everybody loved and wants me to tell again about one time being in St. Louis in a very, very old building, an old YMCA, being told to clean a room in the basement. Me and some of my brave high school buddies went down to this basement room with flashlights and we opened the room and the floor was moving because it was covered with cockroaches. And I've never seen anything uh, as disgusting as that in my entire life, and I never want to again. And I, instead of cleaning the room as I was asked to, quickly closed the door and moved on to the next room. This is a callback here in this conversation with the woman at the well. This is a callback to that same idea that Jesus invited Nicodemus into the light to stop obscuring the light from, and creating dark places in his life. And he says the same thing to her. He says that the gospel is going to be effective. This living water is going to be effective in your life. It has to be effective in all of your life. When she had to admit that she had no husband, I wonder what did she feel in that moment? There's no shame. This is not about her being single. This is about her having a story of five husbands, which even as, as uh, uh, rare as that is today would have been extremely rare and extremely stigmatized and extremely problematic in the first century in Palestine. Everyone would have known her story. Everyone would have known who she was. This is the reason why she's at the well by herself in the middle of the day, because she doesn't want to go in the morning with all the other women. She doesn't want to be mocked. She doesn't want to be rejected. She doesn't want to be left out. She doesn't want to be that one woman who couldn't keep a husband. And you know what? I, I don't know what's gone on with her. We don't know what, what has put her in this situation. And there is no doubt in my mind that the cultural inequities present at that time for her as a woman have contributed at a massive scale to the situation that she's in. There's no doubt she has been wronged and she has been sinned against and she has been used and she has been abused and she has been tossed aside by man after man after man after man. There's no doubt about that. And yet, and yet in the midst of that, Jesus goes to that dark, hidden, cockroach-filled part of her heart that part that we don't want to talk about, that part that she doesn't want to deal with and says it, it, is, it is there that the gospel can do its greatest work. Tim Keller uh, says this about the gospel and I'm paraphrasing it just a little bit for this story, but he says, to be loved but not known is mere sentiment, shallow, fragile, and conditional. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear and the reason we hide, deflect, and obsess over trivialities. But to be known and loved is our heart's desire. It's the path to life and the invitation of the gospel. This is what Jesus is offering her in this moment. He begins this conversation by talking to her about the gracious offer of the gospel, this, this welling up of fresh spring water 
that can purify, that can satisfy. And he offers that all you gotta do is ask me and I would have provided you fresh water, this living water that will always satisfy, that will never make you thirst again, that will purify you completely. That's, that's where this conversation began. And she goes, I want it. He goes, great. Now let's talk about you. Because I know you. And remember that I offered you the grace of the gospel. I offered you this living water before I told you how much I knew you but I knew you, I knew you this whole time and I offered it anyway. See, to be, to be loved but not known is fragile because we just have this never ending suspicion that if people knew us fully, they would stop loving us. But to be known and not loved is our constant fear. It's why we hide, it's why we don't let ourselves be known because we have this nagging belief that if someone did know all of us, then they wouldn't love us anymore. And so we can't possibly make ourselves fully known. But Jesus with this woman in this moment says, I know you completely. There's nothing about you hidden from me. Eat especially the thing you hate the most about yourself. The greatest source of shame and embarrassment and rejection in your life. I know all about it. And I love you. And there's hope. And there's this gracious offer of the gospel. So now it's her moment of decision. How will she respond to Jesus? Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. The Spirit has opened her eyes. She sees truly, she sees more fully who this man, first he was just a Jewish guy sitting at the well. Now he's spoken truth into her life and he goes, she goes, oh, okay, I get it. You're, you're somebody, you're a prophet. There's power, there's some, something real and substantive here. When you say that you can offer me life, I think you might mean it. I think you might be able to back that up because you just knew everything about me. The Spirit has opened her eyes. The question is, what will she do with that knowledge? This is our part. We've been given faith. Now, what do we do with that faith? Our eyes have been opened. Those of us who are Christians here, our eyes have been opened to the reality of who Christ is. Now the question is, what do we do with that? We are saved by grace, but we apply that grace with effort and diligence and commitment and discipline. What will she do with this knowledge that she's been given? Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She deflects. She changes the subject. She grasps for anything, any idea, any talking point that isn't her story. I mean, she's talking about a, a, a theological argument between Jews and Samaritans that, that frankly, she knows nothing about. This is not an educated woman. This is not someone who would be involved in the intricacies of theological discussion and arguments about Jews and Samaritans and the geography of where to worship. We'll see in a moment that she's just simply deflecting the conversation elsewhere. She's making a big deal about something that is not a big deal so that she doesn't have to deal with what is a big deal. We do this all the time. We talk about things we don't understand to distract from things we don't wanna face. 
We make big deals about political issues or social issues or anything that we can do to not actually have to deal with the darkness in our own hearts, the problems in our own lives. In this moment, she feels so vulnerable. She has been exposed. And this is the opportunity that she has to lean into that. She doesn't, she deflects. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. In order to really experience love, we have to lean into the vulnerability that it brings. And when we self-protect when we keep that away, the danger inherent in love, when we keep that away, we do protect our heart from being broken, but what we do in the process is create this calcification around our heart so that it is unbreakable and impenetrable and invulnerable and ultimately incapable of love. Jesus responds in verse 21, One woman, believe me, The hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, If you've ever read this story and thought, gosh, why does the story go in this weird direction where Jesus starts talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth and where's that coming from? This is is literally just this woman trying to deflect the conversation and Jesus saying, listen, you don't even understand the argument. You want to talk about geography of worship, whether it's supposed to be on this mountain or this mountain or in this city or at this well, like you don't even understand the essence of the argument. God is spirit. Worship is meant to be done in spirit and in truth, not in geography. You're you're literally arguing about something that isn't the point. He presses her on this. He says, don't argue with me about where to worship while we stand here at noon because you don't want to be shunned by other women. You're deflecting attention away from your own life and it only hurts you. The roaches are still living down in the basement and ignoring them only lets them thrive and grow. It's like hiring an exterminator and then being too embarrassed of the roaches to tell them where the roaches are. You're in the presence of the solution, but you hide the problem from the very solution because you're ashamed of the problem. 
She responds in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. She says, I, 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 I don't know if you're right. I don't know if the Jews are right. I don't know if the Samaritans are right. I don't know if anybody's right. But, but you know, Messiah is gonna come and he'll sort all this stuff out. Again, I don't wanna deal with this. Let's stop talking about this. The Messiah is gonna come and he'll figure things out. And then Jesus, in an amazing response, says, I who speak to you am he. End of the road. No more deflecting. No more arguing. I am the Messiah. I'm standing before you. I'm not just a Jewish man. I'm not just a prophet. I'm literally the Messiah. You're out of arguments. Deal with me. Deal with you. Deal with what the offer of the gospel is to you. Stop deflecting. Stop trying to turn the conversation. Jesus has not been this candid with anyone thus far. He loves her. He loves her. So much so that he was willing to look her in the eyes and go, I'm the Messiah. Stop. Stop fighting me. there, There is no higher authority to appeal to. There is no next conversation to have. Like you're standing face to face by yourself, one-on-one conversation with the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Don't miss this opportunity. She wasn't ready to get into the details of her life and exterminate all the cockroaches. But in a moment, you'll, you'll see this. She, she's, she's seen enough and, and known enough to be able to take next steps. She runs back into town and starts telling people, I found a man who knows everything about me, knew my story, knew everything I've ever done. Could this possibly be the Messiah? The challenge of Jesus to this woman is the challenge that he gives to us each and every day, and it's a challenge in the most loving way possible. Because the solution is standing in front of you, and and you don't want to talk about it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Letters to Malcolm, uh, talking about prayer and, and the guy he's writing to doesn't want to pray, doesn't like praying. And so Lewis says um, that he has to just begin where he is. So the, the, the phrase is begin where you are. And this is a phrase that we use all the time here at Icon, begin where you are. And in typical Lewis divine genius, uh, he, he, he tells us to begin in the only place that any of us can begin, where we are. We may wish we were somebody somewhere else, but we are where we are. We may wish other people are somewhere else, but they are where they are. This woman in this moment was where she was. This is the place from which she can begin. And the invitation then is to just take the next step. She can't deal with all the husbands, fine. Let's deal with the guy that she's living with now. She can't deal with all all of that story. That's fine. Let's deal with one thing at a time. What's the next step? So the the message of this story is that the offer of the gospel is this satisfying life, this spring of water that will satisfy the deepest needs, this light that can expose and purify and give life to the darkest places within us. And as I was thinking about this throughout the day, and after, in fact, after preaching it this morning, I thought, man, 
this is all very kind of theoretical and philosophical and the idea of light on our lives and allowing that light of the gospel to get into those dark places. But what would that have actually looked like if she had said yes to Jesus? If he had said, I, I know this spring of water that, that, that flows through to eternal life. This is what I can offer you. And she goes, yeah, I want that. And he said, well, I know about your husband. I know about your story. And she goes, okay, what do I do? What if she had said yes? Let's get really practical because the whole point of this is that I want you to say yes as well. Because each and every one of us has dark spots in our heart that we do not want messed with. There are things about us, about our story, about our past, about our present, about our thoughts, about our desires, about our words, about our actions that we don't wanna talk about, that we wanna deflect from at all costs. We don't wanna deal with, but what if we did? What would happen? Here's what would happen. First, she could have talked about it openly without shame without hiding, without qualifying, without conditioning, without blaming. She could have confessed. If she had looked at Jesus and said, listen, this, I, I, I'm looking at Jesus and I'm seeing this man who is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who has offered me grace. If she had accepted that, she could have spoken openly about what was going on inside her. Without qualifying, without hiding, she could have confessed her sin, confessed her role, confessed her part. Second, she would have immediately received forgiveness, acceptance, affirmation, and transforming grace. That's what happens when we confess 100% of the time. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and good to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 100% of the time. Third, once it was in the open and she received forgiveness, she could begin to take responsibility for why she was in that situation and assess it without shame or guilt. Secure in God's love and forgiveness, she could face the hard truths. There is a temptation in us, and I see it more and more uh, as culture moves and changes. I see situations like this where we uh, rush to explain a situation like this by talking about all of the outside forces that would have contributed to it all the cultural inequities, all of the ways that she was disempowered, that she was sinned against, that, that her control was taken away from her and all of the ways that she was a victim of the situation. And here's the deal. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And the call of the gospel and the call to full life is to say that while those things are true, I still can take responsibility for who I am and the decisions that I make. Because see, there's something actually ironically dehumanizing and disempowering about that idea that blames everything on the situation and everything on the power structure, everything on what's going on out there. It says to the person, you are not an actual agent. You don't have the power to make decisions. Everything, you are weak 
and unable to dictate the terms of your own life. You cannot make decisions. You have no agency, which is to say you are not human. Jesus gives her her humanity by asking her about her choices. She can't control culture. She can't control the the inequities of, of politics and social structure. She can't control any of that. She can control her. And Jesus gives her her humanity by reminding her of her agency. Fourth, she could have tackled the underlying sin, motivations, and wounds that put her there in the first place. Once you start to peel things back, you're able to just assess things honestly and go, yeah, here's, here's what has shaped me. Here's what has made me. Here's what motivates me to go from man to man to man, from husband to husband to husband to husband. I don't know what that is. I have no idea what that is for her, but there's something. There's something going on there that she can take responsibility for. And once she has been forgiven and and has experienced the grace of God in forgiveness, she can push that away and deal with those truths honestly. Fifth, she could then begin to pray, read the Bible, live in honest community and be formed by those practices into someone who pursues the way of God. She's been given faith. She's been given grace. And she now has the ability to take that faith, take that grace and apply it to her life in meaningful ways. To pull the levers that God has given us to shape ourselves, to become the kinds of people who pursue the way of God. Sixth, she could have then begun to see real change in her life, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because here's the amazing, full truth of the gospel. That the grace we receive, the faith we receive by grace is given to us as a gift. A gift to be used, to be applied in our lives, to see real change. And it's not as if God gives us this gift and then steps back and goes, okay, let's see what you do with it. That God gives us this gift, this empowering grace, and then by the power of his spirit draws us more and more and more and gives us more grace and more faith and draws us like he is working on our behalf to change and mold us in tandem with our effort and discipline and commitment and devotion to him as we walk the path of life. He wants us to experience life even more than we do. So it all hinges on Jesus. That's why I say all the time that we have to look to Jesus because we know when we look to Jesus, we know what he will do with our sin because he's already done it. We know how he will respond when we open the door to the darkest rooms because he's already done it. He will not mock, he will not shame, he will not judge, he will not condemn. He will save because he already has. We know that he responds to sin through sacrificial love because he already has. There's no question mark about what he'll do in the future because what he has done in the past covers our future. That's the good news of the gospel, that we can open doors freely knowing that he will will bring light into the room, exterminate 
all of what's inside and bring life to it as it was intended to be. Okay, question number one. It seems like the Samaritan woman, uh, what the Samaritan woman was doing was rejecting her sin, asking continually for a higher authority uh, that she would hypothetically trust if only she heard it from a higher source, a Jew, rabbi, prophet, messiah. Don't we often do this exact same thing, saying things like, only God can judge me? How do we engage people who similarly reject truth spoken to them? And how do we challenge ourselves when we are the ones rejecting truth? I mentioned a book, uh, I think last week, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. Uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend you read it. It's 25 pages long. I, I believe in you. Um, the, 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 the idea behind the book is he takes a, a passage from 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 um, in which Paul says, um, talking about being judged by other people, says, I don't, I don't listen to judgment by, from other people because I don't even judge myself. Um, I've been judged by God, right? And so when we're talking about this, this question of how do we you know, deal with people who reject truth spoken to them or how do we challenge ourselves when we're the ones rejecting uh, the truthfulness of our own sin, here's the thing. First, as Christians, you have already been judged, and you have been judged guilty. It's, it's why Christ died on the cross, right? The, the judgment, the, the first judgment is done and God looked down on his creation and said, they're guilty and they will never be innocent without my intervention. And so the solution was that Christ died on the cross. And so if ever there is a desire in us to rationalize, to minimize, uh, to, to distract from or deflect from our own sin, we literally reject the very core of our faith, which is the cross. Like that, that's the centerpiece of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ in which we have been judged guilty. So any desire on our part to deflect from any further sin is, is foolishness because it undermines the very core of our faith, okay? So for, for those who are not Christians, as we interact with people who are not Christians, for those of you who are here and you're not Christians, and you would say, listen, I, you know, who are you to say that I, what I do is sin? I'm nobody, first of all. Absolutely nobody. Don't listen to me. Um, on that issue, uh, I, 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 would say, I would say this, um, by what standard do you judge yourself? Do you have some external standard? And for many, that external standard is, is the self, right? That we would judge ourselves by our own standard. And yet, most of us don't even live up to our own standards. It's March, and most of us have already broken our New Year's resolutions, right? Like, even something as simple as, like, stop drinking so much, we can't do it three months in, right? Like, we don't even live up to our own standards unless we lower the bar so much uh, so as to be basically useless, okay? And so that's not an effective way to, to live our lives. And so I would challenge you, and if you are here and you're a Christian and you interact with people who have this basic argument, to challenge other people to go, by what standard do you even measure yourself? And then how do you measure up by that standard? Um, sometimes we want to grade on a curve, and, and that's great depending on your friends. Uh, oftentimes we can look really great compared to our friends, in which case you've picked great friends. Question two, 
If the gospel can heal anything, how can we also become a gospel-shaped community that invites vulnerability and walks with people through the tough, dark sin in our lives rather than deflecting and hiding? This is a massively important question. For the future of Icon Church, this is a massively important question. And it begins with you. It begins with you. Because, and it begins with me, it begins with whomever in a moment has the opportunity to take the lead, to demonstrate the belief that when we confess our sin, that only results in forgiveness and grace from God. Now, it also is a great risk. It is a moment of vulnerability. There's no question that other people can take our admission of guilt and admission of sin and twist it and use it against us because those people are terrible. Right, and, and that's the reality of dealing with people in the world. When we confess our sin to God, he forgives us and affirms us and loves us and wipes us clean and, and tells us of his love. When we confess to other people, sometimes they use it against us and therefore there is risk. Okay. But it's worth it. And it is gonna take uh, us as leaders and, and me as your pastor to be able to on a regular basis I mean just not too many weeks ago or last week I just talked to you about that ambition sermon was a sermon for me because I want to be somebody I want to attain influence and power and whatever else. I, I've told you this before that when I kind of pull up the sin underneath the sin, underneath the sin, underneath the sin and get down to it, I want to be worshiped. I want you to look at me and think, oh my goodness, that guy's awesome. I want you to worship me as your God, if I'm totally honest. And that's That's gross. I, 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 want to, I want to steal God's glory. I want you to give me the credit for any good that this church or my words or my actions brings to your life, not God. I want that credit. And so we have to lead out in, in, in kind of digging up what is the sin underneath the sin underneath the sin and be honest about it and go, gosh, this is gross. And it's only gonna get healed if we are honest about it and confess it and work to apply the grace of God to it so that that desire in me is transformed into a desire to work hard and bring about great results so that God gets the glory because it's only when God gets glory that anyone else benefits. When I get the glory, I benefit and that's it. So we have to demonstrate that and we have to lead out in that and whatever opportunity, whether that's community group or a one-on-one -on -one interaction, whatever opportunity we have to be honest and vulnerable about our sin and to place it in front of the other person and go, listen, this is the core of our faith that we're jacked. So jacked that God had to die. That's our story. And we gotta live into that in order to be the kind of church we wanna be. Amen? Thanks for listening. For more information and podcast episodes, head to iconchurch.org.